Well, what a beautiful sight. Of course, you have all this beauty to enjoy, but you know the most beautiful thing in the world is the Church of the Living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And I'm glad to be able to be here with you on this beautiful summer day. We're going to be in our Bibles in Acts chapter 2 to begin. So if you're still in Acts from the scripture reading, just go ahead and turn back a few pages to the second chapter of Acts. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning, welcome. Glad to have you with us. We're looking forward to the baptism service after the morning message and the closing hymn. If you are coming as a visitor, let me catch you up on what we've been talking about as a church this summer. We're in between books and we're looking into a study of postmodernism. We began this summer looking into a work from a hundred years ago by J. Gresham Machen, an excellent book that has stood the test of time that talked about how the modernism that arose in the 19th century and took over the churches in the early 20th century was in fact not Christianity, but is a different religion altogether. Well, we live a hundred years after that book was published, and now modernism has passed away largely to be replaced by postmodern culture. And we spent a few weeks looking into the moral relativism of postmodernism, the belief that There is no absolute truth, but that what we hold as truth is all just a matter of social constructs. And each culture has its own truth, has its own religion, and one is not better or more true than another. And so as we live in this time, as we live in this place of postmodernist thought, we recognize that what is happening all around us in the unbelieving world is deconstruction. And largely what is being deconstructed is the Christian worldview. The idea that there is a God who has created everything, that he is the one who we have to give an account to for our lives, that he is the one who determines by his very own nature what is right and what is wrong ethically, that these truths are being deconstructed all around us along with everything else that's connected to them. And so we have been looking these last few weeks into how do we construct our faith in an age of deconstruction? How do we build our faith upon the word of God? And not only building our faith as individuals upon God's word, but building our families, centering them on the truth that is in Jesus Christ. And then as we build our personal faith, as we build our families, we also build up the church, edifying one another as we do on Sunday mornings. So we are building up in an age of deconstruction. And so the last message in this series, of course, has to be on the subject of what about our ministry to the world? How do we share the good news of Jesus Christ in an age of deconstruction, of postmodernist thought? I was listening to Ken Ham recently, and he pointed out that Gen Z is the first truly post-Christian generation in the United States. Before Gen Z, and if you don't know, Gen Z are those who were born after the millennials. Gen Zers were born between 1995 and 2010, give or take a few years. And this younger generation they have grown up biblically illiterate. And they have grown up being taught a worldview that is completely non-Christian. And that's very different from the generations that have come before. And so as we as Christians seek to build up the church by adding to her number through evangelism, we need to know how is it that we share our faith in this postmodernist culture, especially with those who are the young people around us. Now, I'm honored to have Adam and Kristen Johnson here visiting this morning. And 
we're going to be looking into a passage, not only in Acts chapter 2, but we're going to get to Acts chapter 17. And Adam came and spoke at our church just a few years ago on this very subject. So, Adam, you can take some notes and let me know if we're on the same page on this after the sermon is over. But I wanted to start in Acts chapter 2 because Ken Ham also did a, a very good job of pointing out that you compare and contrast the evangelism that we had in our scripture reading, like Acts chapter 13, and the evangelism that you have in Acts chapter 2, which is the very first sermon after the Holy Spirit was poured out upon his church, with the preaching that you have in Acts chapter 17, because you have two very different audiences in these chapters. In Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and in Paul's sermon, which we had for our scripture reading, his audience was largely Jewish. They were those who believed that the Old Testament scriptures were from God. They were those who believed that there is a God who is the creator, who can be known, who has created all of mankind, who is going to judge the world in righteousness. And with that common foundation then, they were able to use the Old Testament prophets to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who believed in those scriptures. You know, in the 20th century, I think the last great evangelist in America was probably Billy Graham. And there's never going to be another Billy Graham because America is not what it was in the 20th century. That there was a foundation, there was work that had been done in the hearts of Americans by millions of Americans in the 20th century that Billy Graham was able to harvest. He was able to go in and preach the gospel to those who had been prepared to hear the gospel and by the power that God had given him as an evangelist to bring many of those prepared souls to saving faith. But as we go out into our world today, there are many souls who are completely unprepared. They know nothing about the Bible. They know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. They know as much about Jesus as you do about Zoroaster. They know he's a person, they know he lived, they know he started a religion, and that's about it. And so, as we go out into that world, we want to learn from Acts chapter 17, how do you share the gospel with someone who is ignorant, if I could use that word in a kind way, of the Bible? Billy Graham could just stand up and say, the Bible says, the Bible says, and people would listen. But if you go out into the world today and say, the Bible says, they're going to say, well, who cares? What the Bible says, I care about as much as that as I do about Zoroaster. They're just old dead guys in history, and we've moved far past them. So Acts chapter 17 is an excellent passage, but before we get there, I want to lay the groundwork for the comparison and contrast in Acts chapter 2. That's why I had you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in Acts chapter 2 in verse 22, and notice that the address is to the men of Israel. Israel, those who had received the law and the prophets, those who believed that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the true and the living God. And listen to the way Peter shares the gospel with these Bible-believing, so to speak, people. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, 
For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That is a revival. That is an evangelistic meeting where a church is built and founded and grown in one day. Now, that doesn't happen except for the fact that John the Baptist came. And was preaching. This wouldn't happen except for the fact that Jesus Christ ministered for three years among the people of Israel, performing the miracles that Peter describes. This wouldn't have happened unless Jesus Christ had spent time in Jerusalem declaring God's word to the people, and everyone saw that he was a mighty prophet. Everyone saw that the power of God was in him and the wisdom of God was in him. Their hearts were prepared. So when the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation at the right hand of God and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was given to these people who had been taught for generations from the law and the prophets, they were ready to respond. And respond they did. And God started a megachurch in one day, but it wasn't just Peter's sermon. It was everything else that had been leading up to that day. Remember that. Some so... Some reap, but the glory, it goes to God. God is the one who is the Savior of men. Now, as you listen to Peter's sermon, you notice that he kept appealing to their knowledge. You know about the miracles of Jesus. You know about the words of David. You know about the prophecies of Scripture. He was building on the foundation that they already had in order to lead them to the point. And what was the point? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is the message of repentance and faith in Christ that is the goal of every sermon. Whether you're preaching to the Jews or whether you're preaching to the Gentiles, you're going to see 
as we compare and contrast Acts 2 with Acts 17, that the point is the same, but they do have a different starting point. They've got the same goal, but they've got a different starting point. Now, a lot of things could be pointed out here in Acts chapter 2 in this message. One thing that I want to highlight is the importance of Christ's resurrection. Look again at verse 24. In the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts by the apostles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central point in their preaching. That's important. Because we often overlook the importance of sharing with people the resurrection. We'll talk a lot about the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I'm not saying that you're not supposed to share the cross. You certainly are. But it seems like somehow in our focus on the cross of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ becomes a footnote. But that's not the way it was in the preaching of the apostles. They talked about the death of Christ, certainly. But they highlighted the resurrection of Jesus Christ just as much, if not more so. Notice what it says there in verse 24. Jesus, back in verse 23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed. Verse 24, God raised him up. And then he goes on focusing on the resurrection by quoting from David in the following verses in the Psalms and then talking again about the resurrection of Christ in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. And then he talks about the exaltation. So the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And then he pours out the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says in the following quotation from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is the gospel that we proclaim that God has raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, that he is exalted to the right hand of God, and that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps the most succinct way of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is just that right there. Jesus is Lord. And that's why Paul later says, you can basically tell whether someone's a Christian or not by whether or not they say and confess, Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are going to be saved. You confess with your mouth that he is Lord, that is the very essence of faith in Christ. He is Lord. Now, with that background in mind, I want to move ahead then to Acts chapter 17. So we're going to be going decades into the future from Acts chapter 2. And we're moving from the first half of the book of Acts into the second half of the book of Acts. The first half of the book focuses on Peter. And remember, as the New Testament says, Peter was commissioned to take the gospel to the Jews. The second half of the book of Acts is about Paul. And Paul was commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But notice this, that when Paul took the gospel to the Gentiles, wherever he went the first place where he presented Christ and the gospel was the synagogue that was in each city. He always started in the synagogue. Why? Well, because those were the people who were most prepared to hear the message. Those were the people that the promises belonged to. They were the ones who were familiar with the scriptures. And he could show them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
and that he has been raised from the dead according to the scriptures on the third day. The beginning of the church in each city that Paul went to with his team was usually among Jews who converted to Christ and God-fearing Gentiles who had already been learning about God, learning about God's word in the synagogue, that was the most fertile ground for the gospel, and that was how most of the churches got their beginning. But there was a few places where Paul went where they didn't have a synagogue. And we have a couple of places in the book of Acts where we have a record of what Paul taught to those who were not familiar and did not believe in the Old Testament scriptures. Acts chapter 14 has a a very succinct message from Paul along those lines. We'll look at later. But we're going to focus our attention in the sermon that Paul gave, the evangelistic sermon, in Athens, of all places. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole story to catch you up, but Paul, through certain events, ends up in Athens by himself. He's there without a team. And he's waiting for his team to catch up to him so that they can figure out what they're going to do next. But let's pick it up then in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And I'm going to read down to verse 21. You follow along in your Bible as I read it out loud. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, remember that in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believed and were baptized because of Peter's sermon. This reminds me of what Jesus told them in the Gospel of John chapter 4. He says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Peter got to reap. He got to go and reap what other people had sown, the ground that other people had plowed, the ground that other people had weeded and taken care of, and he got to be the one who had the joy to go in and bring in the harvest. But we find in Athens that there's unplowed ground. We find in Athens that there is ground that needs to be plowed, ground that needs to have seed put into it. And so whether we are reaping, which is a wonderful blessing, or whether we are plowing or sowing or weeding, whatever work we're doing in God's field in the world, it's for God's glory and it's for the good of others. And so recognize, you'll come across some people who are ready to be harvested. You'll come across other people who you got to do some work to get them to that point. And that's what we're going to be doing with this contrast in Acts 17. So as you saw in the reading there, Paul is taken by some of the philosophers that he's been conversing with in the marketplace, to Mars Hill, called the Areopagus. That's literally translated as the Hill of Mars. Now, Mars Hill was the place where public discussion and public debate took place in Athens. And it was an important meeting place for the men of the city. And so he's getting a hearing for his message. Now, one thing to keep in mind 
is that in the Roman world, it was actually illegal to introduce new religions. They already had plenty of religions to choose from. They had Greco-Roman religion. They had the Jewish religion that was legalized. They had all kinds of other mystery religions and many different religions. And so the Romans thought there's enough religions out there. We don't need anybody coming in and disturbing the social order by bringing in a new religion. So there always was a, a danger or a threat that if Paul was perceived as being a preacher of foreign divinities, as it says there in verse 18, that they could decide, well, this is, this is illegal activity. We don't want you to be doing this, and they could drive him out of the city. Now, this is not a formal trial that they brought him to. This is more of like an inquiry. We want to find out more about what you're doing and whether or not we need to then pursue any action on it. But also, it's a matter of curiosity. Because we find there at the end of the paragraph in verse 21 that the people of Athens, they were in love with anything that was novel. They loved novelty. And we find a lot of that in our world still today, especially in areas of academia, where there's a lot of intelligent people who are gathered for education, like in Athens. Athens was the university city of the ancient world, that in Alexandria. And so coming to Athens, you're going right to the university. That's why Adam loves this passage so much, because he's got a ministry at the university, and, and that's exactly what is going on here in the book of Acts. Now, some people look at Paul's sermon in the book of Acts, and they think that this is a bad example, that we're not supposed to follow this example, because when we get to the end of the chapter, you'll find out that there's not a lot of converts just a few, just a, a handful of people respond to Paul's message. And so some people who are more pragmatic then say, well, Paul messed up. He learns later that he's not supposed to do it this way. And if he had just stuck to preaching the way that he preached in other places, then he would have had a much better result. And that's not true. God has not given us Acts chapter 17 as an example of what not to do. But just like every other sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts, it's given to us as a positive example of what we are supposed to do and what we are supposed to imitate. It would be very strange for God to just give us one bad example in the midst of every other good example of how we're supposed to preach and not tell us that it's a bad example in the passage. So Luke is recording this, and he's recording it as a positive example of apostolic preaching in this circumstance. And it's really the only sermon we have, full sermon, and even that gets cut short, in the book of Acts where Paul is not speaking to a Jewish or God-fearing audience. With that in mind, let's go ahead then and take a look at the passage itself. Here we come to it. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, notice it's different already. Men of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2. Men of Athens, in Acts chapter 17. What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? That was a question the early church liked to ask. There was different answers to that question. Well, let's go ahead and take a look. What does Jerusalem, this preacher, this Jew who was trained in Jerusalem, what does he have to say to the men of Athens? Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That is where his message gets cut off. He probably had more he wanted to say, but that was all that they allowed him to say at that particular occasion. Let's take a look at how Jerusalem speaks to Athens here in Acts chapter 17. Actually, before I get into the text, one more thing about verse 18. You look back at verse 18, and it's important for us to note what the philosophers in Athens thought of Paul when they first began discussing and conversing with him. There, in verse 18, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They called him a babbler. As you can tell, this is a term of derision. Literally, if you're going to bring it over into English, it means seed picker. And the idea of the seed picker is he's somebody that doesn't really have his own thoughts, somebody who doesn't really have a coherent system of thought, but he just goes around picking up some things from what other people have said and puts it together in a relatively incoherent manner. And he tries to sound profound, but he's really a real philosopher. That's the idea here. So their first impression of him is not good. They think he is this seed picker. He has no depth. He has no coherence. He's just trying to sound profound, but he really doesn't know what he's talking about. That was their first impression. And you know what? That is most people's first impression of the evangelist today. And when Adam goes down on the university and starts speaking to someone who is in the philosophy department, they're going to think that, well, Adam, he got some ideas that sound like they have some depth, sound like they have some meaning, but, but really, he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. He's not well-educated like we philosophers are. And so they're going to disdain you when they first hear you, even if you are as eloquent and as theologically minded as the Apostle Paul. I can't think of a better representative for Christianity on the streets of Athens than Paul, and yet they still disdained him. So what can you expect from the similar philosophical worldview that we find in the world today? They are going to have the same attitude. But we do not disdain them. Though they disdained Paul, he did not disdain them. Very important. Notice, put your nose in the text once again. Back at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. That word provoked means angry. That Paul was agitated. He was frustrated. He was upset. He didn't like what he saw in the city because he saw idolatry. And you know what? We as Christians, we know what that feels like. 
We know what it's like to turn on the television and listen to people who are idolaters blaspheme Christ. We know what it's like to go down to the public market and the public square and go online and see people who have no love for the true and living God and have created all sorts of idols. And we we hate the idolatry. We hate what it does to culture. We hate what it does to people. We, We hate that evil, satanic capturing of the mind that is all around us. But notice, there's a big difference between how Paul addresses these pagan idolaters in Acts chapter 17 than how he talks about it in Romans chapter 1. See, here I am talking with you this morning, and we understand from God's perspective how much he hates idolatry, how repugnant it is to him, how morally disgusting idolatry is. We could lead with that when we go out into the world and tell people how morally disgusting and repugnant they are on the spiritual level, but Paul doesn't do that. It's true, but it doesn't mean you have to lead with it. It doesn't mean you have to start there with people because the same Paul who wrote Romans chapter 1 talking about all of the indignation that God has and God's people feel when they see the world filled with moral evil because of idolatry That same Paul also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote in Titus chapter 3 that we are to show every consideration to all men. And he wrote to Timothy and told Timothy that God's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but he must be kind to all, able to teach, patient with those who are lost in worldly philosophies. So while at the same time we have a moral revulsion in our heart against the evil that is in the hearts of mankind, yet at the same time there is a compassion and a concern that is within us that causes us to appeal to them in a gentle way. A gentle way. I worry sometimes that as you listen to me preach Sunday by Sunday, you think this is what I sound like when I talk to somebody who's not a Christian when I get to, on the airplane with them or I, standing next to them in the grocery line at the supermarket. No. I'm very gentle. Here, I can just lay it out ideologically, and I can be strong, and I can be forthright, and I can be bold. But take that same knowledge that we have, and then use it gently to touch those that we want to be plowing the ground, and planting the seed, and preparing them for the day that maybe us, or maybe someone else, gets to harvest that seed that God has planted. Amen? So, Paul is gentle with his approach to the Athenians, and yet, in his gentleness, he does not compromise the truth one bit. It's very difficult to touch someone lightly with a very heavy object, but that is the power of the Holy Spirit that he gives to you. You can take the heavy truths of the gospel and touch someone lightly with them, not lightening the load of the gospel, not taking anything away from the weight of God's truth, but by the power of love, gently wielding that heavy truth. That's one of the main points I want you to get from this morning from Acts chapter 17. So when Paul is standing in the midst, he says, Respectfully, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, according to the English Standard Version Study Bible, this word very religious, it could be taken in a positive sense or in a negative sense or, I suppose, in a neutral sense. It's one of those words that is kind of vague as to whether it's positive or not. But what it clearly communicates is that they were very involved with religion. So you can go to someone today and say, well, I I can see you're very into religion. 
And you're not saying their religion is good. You're not saying their religion is bad. You're just saying, I see you're very religious. Let's talk religion. And that's what Paul wants to do. If someone's not religious, you know, because they're secular, you don't go to them and say, I see you're very religious. But instead, you might say something like, well, I see that you like to think about ultimate questions. You like to talk about where truth and meaning lies and and what we're supposed to do as a society or whatever point of contact you can find with that person. You start with that and, and find that common ground. You know, to be created in the image of God means that even though we're redeemed and many around us are not, we still have common ground. And that's where Paul begins with that common ground. You are religious, Let's talk religion. Now, it's possible, I'm not going to say for sure because I didn't live 2,000 years ago, but it's possible that Paul is doing something very clever here, and I always like to give Paul credit for being clever if I can. When he introduces his talk by talking about the altar to the unknown God, as I mentioned before, according to our best understanding of Roman law, it was illegal to introduce new religions. And so Paul could be very sly, you know, what Jesus told us, be as innocent as a dove, but be as cunning as a serpent. So Paul here could be showing that kind of cunning when he says, I'm declaring to you the unknown God. See, it's not a new God. This is a God you've already got an altar to. I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't know about, who's already a part of your religious culture because you've got an altar to the unknown God. That could be actually a legal defense that Paul is bringing out here and not just a point of contact. Something to think about. Now, what did Paul say? There's some differences here. Now that we've gotten the introduction out of the way, I want to actually dig into the address and find out what are the differences between the way Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and the way Paul preaches here in Athens. One of the key differences is the starting point. Notice that throughout the whole paragraph that I read, there was not one quotation from Scripture by Paul. Paul nowhere quoted the Psalms. He nowhere quoted Isaiah. But he does quote, but he quotes poets outside of the Bible, non-inspired writers. We actually know who he is that he's quoting here. I could give you the names. Eratus and Epimenides, but it doesn't matter. The point is, he has a starting point in common with them. He's trying to find something that is in their worldview that he can use to build upon to take them where he wants them to go. So if you're talking with a Muslim, say, well, what does a Muslim believe in common with a Christian? And how can we start there and then move to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Jesus Christ? So look for a common starting point with whoever it is that you're talking with. That's what Paul does here for us. Now, if you're talking with a Christian, you've got a great starting point here in the Bible. You'll say, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible, right? All right, well, let's talk about how the Bible presents the good news of Jesus Christ. Because I don't think your church has told you what is the full truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's many different people, many different approaches, and the Holy Spirit is with you. He will help you to know how to answer each one as you ask questions. You say, what do you believe? Were you raised in church? Do you believe the same thing that your parents did? Have you changed your views since you were young? You ask questions, you find out where people are, and the Holy Spirit is with you. And he will give you power to share the gospel with an individual, just like he gave Peter the power to preach the gospel, just like he gave Paul the power to preach the gospel. Same God, same Holy Spirit. 
The power is not in you. The power is in him. So don't be afraid of starting those conversations. Don't be afraid of asking those questions. And you should have a goal. And when I start talking with someone, I want to find a way to get to Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That is a great goal to have in your conversations with people. And think about, how do I go from where I am to get to that point? And God will help you, if you want, if you have that goal. Now, as we look into the differences here, there's a second difference that's very important. The starting point was different. He doesn't quote the Bible. He quotes from their poets. But secondly, the content is different. Paul, in Acts chapter 17, can't assume the same knowledge that he would assume when he was speaking to the Jews, but instead he has to reason to the basic foundations upon which the gospel is built. Notice this with me. Look at verse 23. Paul says, As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he starts off with theology. He starts off with who is God. And that was something that these people needed to understand. They did not have this common ground. Their view of God and the truth about God were very different. And so he says, you're religious. Let me tell you about the creator. One of my favorite examples of this that I've come across in my lifetime was the testimony of missionaries with New Tribes Missions. New Tribes Missions would send out missionaries to tribal groups who had never heard the gospel, never heard the Bible, who had no Christian background. If they came in and they just presented the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and has been exalted to heaven, the people might believe it, but they wouldn't understand what they were believing because they would put it into their own context. They would think, well, we've got all these gods. And so now this Jesus, he's just another god. And so their polytheism and their pantheism would just mix together with the gospel and they might think that they're becoming Christians, but they don't have the foundation. And they haven't really experienced saving faith. And so what New Tribes Missions found out is, well, we've got to go in and start with Genesis. Answers in Genesis. You've got to go back and show them that God is the one who is created. He's the one who is the only God who is different from every other spiritual being that you have experienced or that you think you have knowledge of. And so that starting point of, I'm going to tell you about the God who made the world and everything in it. The Creator. We have to start there with those who do not share that starting point with us. Don't jump right into Jesus wants to save you from your sins if someone doesn't know that there is a God who is a creator. They've got to start there. Secondly, not only does he focus on God as the creator, but he focuses on God as the sustainer, that he is the source of life and all blessing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is foundational to the Judeo-Christian worldview, but it's something that other worldviews don't have. And those Gen Zers who are growing up, they don't have this foundation. They don't believe that there is a God who has created the world. They've been taught otherwise. They don't believe that God is the source of life and all blessing. They've been taught otherwise. And so we need to get back to these foundations in order to plow that ground and plant the seeds that are going to be harvested in due time. But that's not all. Not only does Paul teach about theology proper and the nature of God, but he also teaches about mankind. Look at verse 26. He says, God, the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, who gives every blessing that mankind receives, 
he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is anthropology. He starts with theology proper, and then he moves into biblical anthropology, the study of man. What does it mean to be human? People who are growing up in our culture, who do not grow up in church, who do not hear the Bible stories, who are being educated in the secular system, they don't know what it means to be human. And without understanding that mankind has been created by God for a relationship with God, the gospel is nonsense. You're going to sound like a seed picker when you go and talk with people and they don't believe that God created mankind for the purpose of knowing God. You've got to get them to that point before you can harvest the seed. So Satan is working overtime to undermine all of these basic foundational truths in our culture as he seeks to de-Christianize the West. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Those Athenians, men, women, like you and I 2,000 years ago, rubbing shoulders with Paul in the marketplace, they disdained him. But now we are 2,000 years later, and we know what the preaching of the Apostle Paul has accomplished. We know the impact that Paul's message and his labors for the gospel, what that has done for history. It has transformed the world. It has transformed cultures. It has transformed nations. It has saved countless millions of people. They had no idea about that. And my point is, Satan is working hard to undermine all of that. As Paul Christianized the West, now the West has been de-Christianized. We are truly living in a post-Christian culture. We are back to Acts chapter 17. All that progress, all that work has largely been undone among a large percentage of Europeans and Americans and Australians and Canadians and, and all of that. And so we need to be aware. And that's why Acts chapter 17 is so helpful to us as we seek to shine a light for the Lord Jesus Christ in this post-Christian world just as Paul was shining the light for Jesus Christ in that pre-Christian world. And just as Paul's strategy was to build the church from those who already had the common world view and to make a foundation of a strong church among those who knew the scriptures and believed the scriptures and could be harvested for Christ and then grow strong in their faith in Christ, so that's what we need to do as well. I'm not saying we don't go down to the universities and share the gospel with kids who've never heard about Christ, but I'm saying that we don't want to neglect the mission field of the church. The church that went liberal in the 20th century, the church that went postmodern in the 21st century, let's not give up on those people. Those sheep are ready to hear the truth. Those sheep that have been lost in liberalism, those sheep that have been taken away by the false shepherd of postmodernism, let's get them back. Let's go after them and say, hey, you believe the Bible. You believe that there's a God who created the world. You believe that God's going to judge the world. Let me bring you back to a proper understanding of Christianity because you've been misled. Let's build strong churches that can shine as a strong light in southeast Nebraska so that people can look around and see that's Christianity. Look at their families. Look at their faith. Look at their hope. Look at their love. Look at the joy that they have. Look at the stability. Look at what they're building, a community. Let's build that and let that then be the testimony to the lost world so that they can come and ask, what is the reason for this hope that you have? Why are your young people 
not depressed and anxious and suicidal like our young people? Why are your marriages lasting with love and joy while our marriages are full of bitterness and divorce? Let's set up that culture firmly founded upon God's word, brightening the corner where we are. You don't have to take back the culture. You have to build your culture here where God has planted you, in this corner of Nebraska. You brighten this corner. You share the gospel with the people who are around you. Don't worry about the nation. Don't worry about the world. Worry about yourself. Worry about your family. Worry about your kids. Worry about your neighbors. Worry about your school. Worry about the church down the street and the Christians who are not getting taught the gospel. Brighten the corner where you are. Turn off the TV. Stop worrying about the nation. And do the work that God has given you to do. Now, as we look at what Paul taught, he taught that God is the creator. He taught the unity of mankind. And Satan is trying to undermine the unity of mankind. Satan is trying to create tribalism. Satan's trying to say that all different cultures have evolved differently. There's no truth that unites them. There's no God who's calling all these nations to one faith and one belief. That all of that is evil. All of that is racist. And you go out and you share the gospel with people and you tell people that there's one human race, that God created us from Adam and Eve and that we're all part of the human family together and that that God is the God who's calling us back back into unity, no matter what our skin color, no matter what our nationality. And they say, that's racist, because you're trying to erase their cultural heritage. And as far as their cultural heritage is against God and against the truth, that's right. I am trying to erase their cultural heritage, because I want it replaced with the truth. The truth that God created them, that God created them to seek Him, that God created Him to know them, and that God wants us all to be in one body, under one head, under one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all men, everywhere. Now, there's so much more that can be said from this passage. But I want to end with verse 31, because that's where Paul ends. You come back to the text in verse 31. And Paul gets to this point where he proclaims to them final judgment. Okay, if you're with me up to this point that there is a God who is the creator, if you're with me up to this point that he is the source of life and every blessing, if you're with me up to this point that God has created all men and therefore has the right to tell all men what to do, if you're with me up to that point that idols are folly because they misrepresent God, Then, the next thing that you need to understand is there is a day of judgment. The God who made us, the God who has the right to tell us what is right and what is wrong, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the man who is going to do that judgment is the one that he has raised from the dead. Now, Andy Stanley and I have a lot of differences on what makes for good evangelism and what makes for a good church, but there's one thing I can agree with Andy Stanley on. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important evidence, the most important truth claim that we can present in our culture anytime, anywhere throughout church history. We need to be ready to proclaim and defend our belief that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. That's the goal. To get people to understand that he is the judge of the living and the dead and that the proof that God has given to every person in southeast Nebraska is that Jesus Christ is alive after he died. And that's not a belief that is based upon a hope so. That is historical fact that every human being is accountable to reckon with. 
And if you choose not to believe that historical fact, it says something about you and your attitude towards truth, your attitude towards God, your attitude towards sin. He will judge the world in righteousness. So notice that while Paul starts very gently, he gets to the point. He doesn't say, well, we'll save that judgment stuff for another day. For now, we just want to start with the first step. There is a God who's created all things. Let's just leave it at that for a while. No, Paul doesn't just leave it at that. He says, that is foundational to understand what it is that I really want to tell you. And I'm not going to wait to tell you three years from now when we built the relationship, when I brought you step by step along the way. I'm going to tell you, first sermon I get among all of you folks here at the Areopagus, there's a judgment day. And Jesus Christ is going to judge you. Now, Paul would have been wise in an evil sense of the word to not talk about the resurrection of the dead among the Athenians. The Athenians, as you see in verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They were willing to listen to him up to this point, but as soon as he starts talking about a man being raised from the dead, they're like, all right, that's enough of this guy. Get him out. Nobody believes that stupid stuff. I came across a quote from the ancient world. Aeschylus was the writer back in the 5th century BC, 500 years before Paul. And when they were setting up this council of Ares on Mars Hill, Aeschylus wrote about that, and in the words of Apollo, the god, Apollo said, at the very institution of this congregation that he's speaking to, said this, When the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. Their whole worldview, their whole system of thought had been founded on an anti-materialist philosophy that found resurrection, physical bodily resurrection, to be one of the most foolish ideas that could be proposed. And Paul doesn't say, well, I know I'm supposed to preach the resurrection, but let's wait on that. Because if I talk about the resurrection, people are just going to get turned off, they're going to mock, and they won't believe, and that will be counterproductive. So let's be good pragmatists and just leave the part of the resurrection out for now. And then maybe they come to trust me, and we've built up a friendship over years, and they've been coming to our church. Maybe they've got three or four kids in the church by now. Then we can talk about some of these things when they're ready for them, these in-house doctrines, right? Paul doesn't do that. From the very beginning, he says, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the message that I have. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to alter it. I'm going to proclaim it. And so we go out into the world with gentleness, yes, but not with cowardice. We go out into the world wanting to show every consideration for all people, but that does not mean that we hide the truth from them. You can fall off on two sides of this horse. Many Christians fall off one side of the horse, they get up back on the horse, they fall off on the other side. The goal is to sit on the horse, to be gentle, but also to be bold and courageous. You can do both, because... You are a Christian, and you have the Spirit of Christ as your teacher, your helper, your guide, 